This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We want to be like the Bereans, who searched the Scriptures to see whether or not the things that they rejoiced in when they taught were true. We also want to evaluate what we believe to the Word of God or by the Word of God. So that if we are believing something that's wrong, we desire to have that belt of truth on and to truly be on that truth quest. So if you have a question, then go ahead and write the word question before your question, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. It's good to see you guys here today. Go ahead and say hi. You can also let me know uh, where you are watching from. I would really appreciate that. And uh, before we get into our first question today, I have uh, just something to share with you guys a little bit. I know there's a lot of talk that goes on during the um, on the comment section uh, during uh, the Q and A, and I just kind of want to encourage you to keep the stuff that you're talking about on point. I would love to be able to interact with some of your questions uh, and also some of your responses to the questions. And so I can kind of see them and respond along with them. This is what I get, and I can look and see your questions. And if you're responding, maybe giving some more information on a topic that I didn't, or a scripture that you can think about that you would bring up, maybe I could take a look at that and bring it up, and we could talk a little bit more about it. It can be more of a conversation. If there's a lot of stuff going on that's just a lot of banter, then it can be a little bit distracting. I would love to interact with you guys more, and I think that we can make this more effective uh, to the people that are are watching, all right? So it's good to see you guys. Uh, again, let's pull that back up again. Uh, good to see you, Carl, Andre. Uh, I really appreciate you guys. Jari, as always, fact check these hands. Violet Sag, good to see you guys on here. And uh, I think that we're gonna have a good time today as we take a look at the Word of God. So our first question today is one that was left by Andre. And Andre always leaves good questions, and he may be the first one here today. We might make that one the first one for the next one. Um, but Andre left this at our last Q&A on, um, on Wednesday, and it was near the very end of it, and we didn't really have time to go into it because this is gonna take a little bit more. But he said, if the Holy Spirit uh, makes intercession for us, or if the Holy, yeah, Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, Romans 8, 26 and 27, is giving the gift of tongues the Holy Spirit way of himself breather, uh, giving himself a breather, 1 Corinthians 14, 2. And I, I realize that there's a little bit of tongue in cheek in what Andre um, was saying here, that uh, he was saying a, a little a, a little bit, um, as, as kind of like, what's the Holy Spirit doing here? Because we know that the, time, the Holy Spirit doesn't need a breather, right? And I know that Andre knows that. Um, but I want to go ahead and show you guys a couple of passages because there is a misunderstanding between the passage in Romans 8 and the gift of tongues. And that the gift of tongues is for intercession. And I want to show you that it's not. Let's take a look, first of all, at the passage out of Romans. So this is Romans 8, and we have here uh, in uh, uh, verse 26, it says, In this same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, that we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through uh, uh, wordless groans. 
and he searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. So particularly when I am praying and I start to groan, then, and I don't know what to pray for, God's Spirit intercedes. He knows what I'm going through. He knows what I need. He, know, he begins to intercede for me. And that's very powerful. It literally means that when you cry, when you weep because of something going on with someone that you love, that the Holy Spirit is, is interceding for you. Tongues is a completely different issue. Tongues is not intercession at all. And I want to show you, first of all, by looking at a couple of different passages. So this is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. Now, the first thing that says here is that when I am speaking in tongues, I am talking to God. I'm not talking to men. This is different than prophecy. And I have attended for years Pentecostal and charismatic churches and knew that this, that what they were practicing was not what the Bible is talking about. They would have someone speak in tongues or maybe everybody speak in tongues at once. And then somebody would give a prophecy or someone would, would give an interpretation for a tongue. And they would say something like, thus says the Lord, God is going to use this church. I am pleased with you, my people. And God is going to use you in great and mighty ways. Okay, so something along those lines. Well, that's prophecy. That's not the interpretation of tongues. Because when you pray in tongues, it's your spirit speaking mysteries to God. Listen to what this goes on to say. It says, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So why is it edifying me when I'm speaking in tongues? Because I am magnifying God. I am speaking of his mighty works. I am praising his name. I am lifting him up. And there's something self-edifying about worshiping him. I'm not saying worship isn't for God. I'm simply saying that when we speak in tongues, we are worshiping him. It goes on to say, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. And the church receives edification by the Holy Spirit giving the person tongues to be able to praise God. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall it profit you unless I speak either by revelation or knowledge or by prophecy or by teaching? Even then, without life, uh, whether flute or harp, when it makes a sound, unless it makes a distinction of that sound. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and move on from that. I want to go to a couple of passages because I know that there's going to be some who are objecting, and that's fine. I, um, I often say, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm trying to find out what the truth is. I want to look at the truth and I want to I want to know what the truth is and I think that you guys do as well. I think that you want to know what the truth is as well. So, um I got a couple of passages here that help us to understand a little bit more about what's being said. When I speak in tongues, it's me speaking to God, not God speaking through me. That's prophecy. And so here we have the first place that tongues was used. And this is kind of a unique situation because it's during the day of Pentecost. And 
tongues of flame, fire came on people's heads, whatever that was, rushing wind in the room, people began to speak in tongues and people in their own languages heard them. There were all kinds of Jews from around the world who heard them praising God in their own languages. And here it says, and this is Acts 2, 11 and 12, it says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own language, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? What did they hear in their own language? The wonderful works of God. They were praising him. They were lifting him up. They weren't giving prophecies. And again, in Acts 10, now this is considered to be the, the Gentile Pentecost. When Peter is at the house and the sheet comes down with unclean food and Peter says, no unclean thing has ever entered into my, my mouth. And, and, uh, and, uh, and he says, I won't do it. And then God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. And he goes to Cornelius's house. And there at Cornelius's house, uh, he begins to preach the gospel with him. And it says in verse 10, Acts 10, verse 45, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, and it goes on. But note again, magnifying God. Anytime we hear what tongues are, it's us speaking to God. There is never an example of us interceding in tongues, of us prophesying in tongues. And so when you lay hands on someone, if you have the gift of tongues, and you lay hands on someone and you pray in tongues, you are not interceding for them. You are, you are praising God while you lay your hand on them. You're edifying yourself. Now you might lay your hand on them and not know how to pray and begin to cry or begin to just say, oh God, help. And you don't know what to pray for. But as you groan, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and can intercede for them. So these are two entirely different passages. And in this is just one of the ways that tongues has, have been misused. The Bible says, when you speak in tongues, this is 1 Corinthians 14, let it be two at the most three, let there be an interpretation of those tongues. And if there are no, no interpreters, then keep silent in the church. So everyone's not supposed to speak in tongues. It's to be done decently and in order, the Bible says. And that's because even in their day, they were had churches that were doing it out of order. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit is, the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And the Bible says the spirit of the prophet is controlled by the prophet. And so, this idea that everybody speaks in tongues and it, instead of speaking in a language that can be heard and understand and edify the body. The reason that we gather together is to edify the body. Now, before I move on to the second question, I want to consider something we talked about on Wednesday. I was asked about whether or not it was okay for a Christian to watch a horror movie. And I wasn't entirely satisfied with my response. I wanted to clarify a couple of things. I, I don't like to be legalistic. I don't like to draw lines and say, you can't do this and you can't do that. Obviously, when it comes to moral issues, Christians should not be doing them. And so if there is something immoral in the movie, then we would not want to do it. But we don't want to become legalistic. We wanna look at the things that edify us. And so I would ask some questions. 
what would it be? What would be the, the reason you would want to watch the movie? Is it for entertainment? And if it's for entertainment, is there something in it that's going to feed your flesh that's not going to edify you? These are the kind of questions that we should be asking about everything that we do. The Bible says, do everything to the glory of God. And I, people have become legalistic over the years. And instead of saying, what we you can't do this and you can't do that and running around i'm better than you because i do don't do this and you do that and boy we could fall into that really quickly instead we say i want to serve god i want to love him and i want to do things that edify him and edify the people around us and so this halloween season when there's so many shows out there that can be bad the question is why would we watch it and is there any edification in it and if you're going to watch it just to be entertained, you just need to shut your mind off. You need to be entertained. Well, okay, then make that decision, but don't do it if it's going to end up being harmful to you in some way. I think a lot of it is made up and, and is, is, is not believing. And uh, because of that, um, I think that, well, I don't want to say it's okay. I just want you to seek God for what is um, edifying for you and making that decision. I don't want to make those decisions for you. I want you to make them. But is it edifying to me? Is it going to hurt me? Is Am I sowing to the flesh? Later on from the flesh, am I going to reap corruption? Is this glorifying the devil in any way, the enemy in any way? So I think those are good questions uh, to be asking. All right, so I was right. Andre had first, uh, but we're doing one question per person today. So Andre, I've already done yours. Um, who are the saviors that come to Mount Zion, Obadiah? Um, we'll take a look at that later on, all right? So ask that question again later on if you would like to. Andre, um, sorry about that. So fact check these hands, got first in. Stole it from Andre because we covered one of his questions uh, in as our first question. Uh, good to see you, fact check these hands. Fact check these hands says, if I leave gospel tracts in random places, hoping someone finds it and gets saved. Does that count as soul winning? Does it qualify for a crown? Uh, to shy, uh, hand, uh, to shy, to, 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 yeah, to hand them out directly. Or should you hand them out directly? I'm not sure exactly what that last sentence is, but um, sure, it qualifies as soul winning. We want to plant seeds. We want to water but God adds the increase. Now, qualify for a crown. There's five crowns that are spoken of in the Bible and crowns, are we gonna walk around with crowns in heaven? Are we gonna go, yeah, I got my crown, you know? I, I don't know, but we, we may want something to cast at the feet of Jesus. And um, I think anyone who waters, anyone who plants, Anyone who's thinking about evangelism as they as they leave a good tip because the people there know you were a Christian, just those kind of things, I think are really important. Who knows what God's doing or what God's doing around them? And um, the Bible does say that we are ambassadors of Christ as if we are persuading people. Or what's the exact word that's used there? What is it? First Corinthians 5.20? Let me just take a look here and let me look it up really quick. Um, I want to see how that exactly that is worded because uh, I think it's really important. 
I think it's first, second Corinthians 520 is what I think it is. Let me see if it's it. Second Corinthians 520. And it says, yeah, that's it. So let me go ahead and get this up on the screen for you. Um, thank you. Fact check these hands for your questions. I think we should always be considering soul winning. Uh, because we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so here it says, um, now then we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I, I, I saw another video today. Uh, someone, famous preacher, who was trashing giving altar calls. And I listened to what he had to say. And in a way, I understand what he was saying, that when we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts, what does the heart mean? And does it ever say to invite Jesus into our heart? But just because someone gives an altar call doesn't mean they do that. John 1.12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So receiving him is very biblical. At the end of Acts, Paul persuades people all day long to come to Christ. And we as ambassadors, again here, um, pleading, be reconciled to God. And if you want to, if you don't want to do altar calls in your ministry, more power to you. Go ahead, do what you want to do. Um, I'll continue to do them because I'm persuading people to be reconciled to God. And I will lead them in what is the sinner's prayer, which there's so much criticism about it. And I'm bouncing off your question on to what evangelism is um, and whether or not we are rewarded for it. I, I think we ought to give people a chance to get to come to Christ. And when, and I don't want to open up a whole can of worms, but this guy was a Calvinist and Calvinist evangelism is different. When he's criticizing the Lord's prayer or, or the, uh, the altar call prayer, he believes that everything's been determined by God and that the people that are there are either chosen or not. They can't be persuaded. He doesn't believe in persuasion. He believes in determinism. And so in a way, I'm determined to give an altar call because God determined that for me. That's what they would say. And so his criticism is not for those who would believe that God gives a genuine choice to men. If God doesn't give a genuine choice to men and there are people that are dead like corpses and they can't respond because God's not going to give them light, then why should you give an altar call? I understand that. That's your, that's your theology. I wouldn't think you'd give an altar call. But if you believe that when God says, choose you this day whom you will serve, that it was a very real choice, then you better persuade people. And why would Paul be tell us that we are ambassadors, again, uh, ambassadors of Christ, reconciling, trying to reconcile people to God? Why would we be doing that? Why would, why would Paul persuade people all day long that they would come to Christ? To me, if God hasn't given everybody a chance and if choices aren't real and don't bring real blessings and, and difficulties into our lives, but it's all predetermined, then God has set up in the scripture something that would be a charade. God would say, choose good, do right things and you'll be blessed, but you don't have the opportunity to choose or to do right things. It's all been predetermined for you. So if you really can't choose, 
and you were chosen to be a vessel of destruction from before the foundations of the world, then, well, there's no reason to persuade anyone. And it looks like God is saying, whosoever can come, but I don't really mean it. Choose who you're going to serve, but not really. Believe and, and you'll be saved, but not really because those who are going to believe are going to believe. And I understand how they go back to these texts and I understand how they would respond to the things that I'm saying. I'm not saying that they don't have responses or that they don't have responses within their theology. I'm simply saying to me, it looks like God would be deceptive if he preordained before the foundations of the world who was saved and who wasn't. And you could not, you could not make a decision for Christ. And believing in Christ, receiving him as your savior, when you say, Lord, I want you in my life, that is not meritorious. In other words, you're not earning your salvation by receiving. It would be like a like at Christmas, your child runs up and says, oh, I got a gift and, and runs up and grabs the gift out of your hands. And you said, okay, son, you just earned that gift by taking it out of my hands. Well, they didn't earn the gift, it's a gift. And God has given us a gift. And if you don't receive it, you don't receive it, but that's your choice. If you receive it, then you receive it. So yes, we leave tracks everywhere we go. We give altar calls, we sow seeds, we plant as much as we can because we believe that choices are very real and that God was not playing a game, that he doesn't warn us just out of whatever. Why would God warn anyone about the way that they are supposed to live? Did the prodigal son, when he returned, did he do anything uh, uh, to earn his, his, the father's forgiveness when he returned? He returned and the father gave him a tremendous amount of grace. And that's the grace that God gives us. And so, yeah, we are, we, we believe that our evangelism makes a difference and that people get saved because we share Christ with them. And um, I'm, I'm glad that Calvinists still believe that God had determined through their preaching for people to come to Christ. And so they keep on preaching. And I'm, I'm glad for that because at least the message is being taught. But when these Calvinists put out their videos against, or they, they speak against altar calls and, and praying to lead people to Christ, leading them in a prayer, uh, I just think, well, it just fits so well with your theology, but it doesn't fit with mine. I believe God gives people real choices. All right, so yeah, keep it up. Fact check these hands, leave your tracks, share Christ, give good tips, okay? Don't leave a track as a, as a tip. <laughs> Don't do that. I think that might be counterproductive to winning people with Christ. And you are an ambassador of Christ, and you are to persuade people that they would give themselves uh, to Christ, um, to be reconciled to God. That's our goal. That's our desire. All right. So again, good to see you guys here. Um, I just thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Um, Andre said spot on, Pastor Furrow, and I thank you for that. Um, I'm also asking now that a little bit more people are signed on that we try to keep the comments more connected to what we're talking about. I'd love to have you guys responding, maybe putting another verse up that you think that speaks to what we're talking about, maybe adding a thought to what's being said or responding to me with a question that's a follow-up, maybe even on someone else's question of something that you might not understand about that or something that um, that you see that you wanna say, a statement that you would like to make. I think it would make our chat and the whole Q&A more effective if we are interacting with one another in that way and using the chat to, to give more 
flavor and nuance instead of not really focusing in and um, having the chat be about something entirely different. Remember, I'm reading the chat walks and then sometimes I'm wondering, why are we talking about all of this when we're talking about very important things? I'm not saying be, be quiet and don't be silly. That's all good. I'm just saying I would love for us to connect a little bit better with uh, the things that are being said. I'll probably bring it up one more time, probably do that a couple or three um, different Q&As just to try to get us to that point. Um, so we have a question for Jari. Jari, good to see you. Does Satan uh, treat the demons with respect? It's kind of like a boss-employee relationship or does Satan only care about himself? even the fallen angels. What language does God speak? Tongue. I imagine in tongues, probably got cut off by YouTube. YouTube only lets you have so many words, right? I might be running, about to run out of them there. Um, so Jari, uh, when, when you see shows, try to show our books, try to show interaction with demons, it's kind of like the interaction from Lord of the Rings and the orcs. They easily get mad at each other and easily attack one another. And that's kind of been the idea, like, like demons are kind of like dogs. They're just, they're just easily provoked and they'll attack one another quickly. Um, I don't know. Jesus said that there's some control and order that a house divided against itself can't stand. And if I were going to have a movie and have the demonic world represented, I wouldn't have them be like the orcs in Lord of the Rings or be like a pack of hyenas that turn and tear one another apart. I also wouldn't have them be really encouraging. I'd have them being selfish. But um, none of us really know because we don't get interaction with the demons. And your second question here, I love how you kind of get two in there. Um, I have no idea what language God speaks in. English, of course. American, American, that's what God speaks in. I'm kidding. Um, we don't know. I, I, I take it there is a heavenly language because 1 Corinthians 13 says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, was it prophets me nothing or I am nothing, whatever, whatever the response is to that particular one. So I would think that there is a heavenly language or a language of angels, and maybe that's not the language of God. I don't know. Um, I, we'll find out when we get there. There are some things that are just a mystery and are going to remain a mystery. All right. So, um, appreciate you guys. All right. So, um, we have a question from Tim, Tim and Tim. Good to see you here. Um, I'm, this may be your first time here. At least me recognizing you. So good to see you. Welcome. Uh, Tim says, hi, Pastor Robert in numbers 20, 11 through 30. Is there a hidden deeper meaning besides not trusting God? Of course. That explains why Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about here. Let me go ahead and pull this up. Numbers 20 and 11. I, I really do think that there is something to this here. Numbers 20. I'm starting verse 11. And then let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen. So here it says, um, then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. So they most, they, the children of Israel were asking for water again. Moses and Aaron must have been talking about them 
and Moses comes up being angry and strikes the rock. But God had told him to speak to the rock to give them water. And I think that might be in just a couple of verses up above it. Let's just see. Um, all right, let's see. Yeah, here's God speaking to Moses. Take your rod and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes. That's the direction of God. Speak to the rock before their eyes. And it will yield the water thus. And you shall bring water for it from the rock and give drink to the congregation for their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said, here now, you rebels, must we bring water to you out of the rock? Now, this is a very different tone than what God had. God was like, speak to the rock, give them water for their animals and for them. And Moses calls them rebels. Then Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock twice. God told him to speak to the rock and water came out abundantly and the congregation ate and drank. And then the Lord spoke to Aaron and Moses, because you did not believe me, hollow um, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So this is the point where Moses and Aaron are not allowed to go into the promised land, which is really a bummer for Moses. Um, Moses, remember that when he came down with the original tablets, got angry when he saw the people around the golden calf, which could have been right, but he broke the tablets. It seems that, Aaron, um, that Moses had some kind of an anger issue. God used him anyway, right? But it seems that he had some kind of an anger issue. But the rock that followed them in the New Testament says it is Christ. Now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean that there was, does that mean that, that there was just a rock that drug around behind them? Did it mean that wherever they put up camp, that rock would suddenly be there? Did it mean there was a spring of water that came out of the rock? There, I don't know exactly what it means. I don't know exactly what it looked like. All we can do is read what the Old Testament said. But the rock that followed around was Christ. And the rock had to be struck. And water, living water would come out of the rock. And so Jesus is the, the rock and he was struck on the cross and living water came out of him. And Moses, by hitting it twice again, broke the analogy that God had given us of Christ being the rock. And God wasn't upset at the people. Moses was. And so Moses misrepresented God. First of all, Moses didn't do what God told him to do. So how important is it that we follow God's instruction? And, and here I kind of come back to our opening one on tongues. How important is it when God tells us how they're to be, to be practiced and then we don't practice it that way? How important is it that we listen to him and do the things he says to do instead of going out and doing it our own way, which is what Moses did. But yes, there is a deeper meaning to that, Tim. And the deeper meaning is that the rock is Christ and he went up and struck Christ to bring living water out of anger. And that's not how we get the living water from Christ. We speak to the rock and the rock gives us living water. Uh, we don't strike the rock. And um, so that's uh, very intuitive. Uh, it is, God, God does this with a lot of different things that represent Jesus and he's giving us a spiritual analogy out of something from the Old Testament. Uh, so, um, right. So yeah, Jari's saying that he doesn't believe in doing altar calls or saying uh, sinner's prayer. I don't know if you're talking about somebody in particular, but uh, as I said, most often these guys are Calvinists, not all of them, but most often they're Calvinists. I do know, and, and, and I love um, Ray Comfort, but I do know that he doesn't like altar calls. 
because he thinks you're making, you're, you're going to make false disciples. And I think, let's let God sort that out. What do you, you're supposed to just tell people, hey, you could come to Christ and then walk away? When we're told that we're to tell people to be reconciled to God without explaining how to do that. So I just disagree with that. I, I like Ray Comfort a lot. I like what he does. I don't know about the whole method thing. This is the only way that you can lead someone to Christ if you're familiar with his, his ministry. But most of the time, it's Calvinists who are saying that. They don't like altar calls, but they have a reason for not liking them. All right. So um, thank you guys again for being here. Good to see you guys. Uh, we have a question here from Live Phoenix. Live Phoenix, this might be your first time with us as well. Good to see you. At least your first time asking a question. Um, might It might be a bit confusing, but is Israel still God's people? Is he still with them? Not saying he has abandoned them, but they have been through a lot in the last 24,000 years. Uh, they have been. Joel Rosenberg, who's a friend of mine, um, likes to say, we're God's chosen people and we've been through so much. I wish just once God would choose somebody else. So he likes to say that. Uh, I want to go to uh, Romans chapter 11. Some of you guys may know where I'm going with this particular passage, uh, but I want to bring it up here on the screen. I think it's Romans 11.25. I will see, and that's the right place. Um, yeah, so this is Romans 11.25, and it has to do with this idea. So Jesus told a lot of parables, like the parable of the wedding feast, but those invited didn't come. So go out in the highways and byways and bring them in. And if you come in and you don't have wedding clothes, then you're going to be kicked out. So this is Israel being set aside for a time. They, God said, I will never forget you, my people. I've carved you on the palms of my hand. If a mother forgets a child or a womb, I will never forget you. God promised that he would reconcile, that he would restore the land of Israel, restore the people of Israel to the land, and then restore them to himself. And that's Ezekiel 36 through 40, 41 or 42, that you have the restoration eventually being spiritual, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour spirit of mercy and grace out upon Jerusalem, and they will mourn for me as one who mourns for only son when they look upon me whom they pierced. And the New Testament tells us of that verse that the piercing is when they pierced his side with the sword. And so we know that God is going to reconcile them spiritually. And listen, look at this passage here. This says, this is Romans eleven twenty five, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Why in part? Because Jewish people are getting saved. The, the early church was, was all Jewish for a while. And then Gentiles started getting saved. So the salvation that we have in believing in Christ and becoming part of the church, remember he told Peter, who was Jewish, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, I will build my church. And so the first church was established by in, in Jerusalem with Jewish people. And today, a lot of times when Jew, someone who's Jewish gets saved, there's such a stigma against Christianity because of the history and people who say they're Christians and are not that they don't want to be part of the church, but they are whether they like it or not. They become part of the church, the ecclesia. They are saved. They are born again, just like the Gentiles, because to God, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, Jesus talked about Jerusalem being trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles was finished. 
Jerusalem is under Israeli control since 1973. Does that mean the times of the Gentiles is finished and we're just waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, which is what it says here. And then it says, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant to them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospels, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So God loves Israel and like God elects us, God elects the people who believe in him. If you believe in him, that's God's choice. And that's what God means in Romans chapter nine, when he says some are made for destruction and some are made as vessels of honor and some of us vessels of dishonor. The one who are vessels of honor are the ones who believe in Christ. God is foreordained before the foundations of the world that those who believe in him would be saved and those who don't believe would become vessels of dishonor. That's God's choice. And so if you believe in him, then you are part of that election. And, and, and the nation of Israel was chosen by God to be elect if they believe. And blindness has happened to them in part. So yes, and, and, and when it says here, so all Israel will be saved there, verse 26, right in the middle, here, I'll underline it for you. So, um, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Zion. Or, or, or from uh, ungodliness from Jacob. All, does that mean all? And sometimes all doesn't mean all. Uh, when the wise men came to Herod, it says all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. Well, what about a baby in Jerusalem? What about somebody who hadn't heard about it? What about a homeless person? Were they all? No, all meant the vast majority of them. So all might not always mean all, but all never means a few, and that's important. You can't say all of Israel will be saved and just have it be a couple. You might argue that it's not every single person, and you may use passages to do that, but all never means a few, and all of Israel is going to be saved one day, and God will pour his spirit of mercy and grace out upon the, um, out upon um, Israel, and they will be saved. Um, is Calvinist evangelism uh, or is Calvinist evangelism an oxymoron? Um, no, I would say not because Calvinist, there have been great Calvinists in the past who have done great missionary work and who have done, um, who have done evangelism. And, and there are guys today that do, they do evangelism. They invite people, I don't know if they invite people to receive Christ, but they do tell people to give their lives to Christ because God has foreordained them to persuade them and that through their persuasion, the ones that God has chosen would come to him. So they believe that evangelism was the way that God chose to bring the elect and to them, the elect means something very different to us. It means the, those whom God has chosen who would believe in him would be the elect to them. It means that they were chosen before the world. You're going to go to heaven and your vessel of honor, your vessel of dishonor and that God through the preaching of someone would have them respond and come to him. But it was all before ordained. So they do evangelism. Um, if I were, if I believed in Calvinism and I believe that things were preordained and that grace was only given to the elect 
and, and atonement was limited, and Jesus didn't die for the unelect, then I would not do evangelism with the same heart. I'm just speaking to myself. I'm not making any accusations about any other Calvinists. I'm just telling you for myself, I would not do it with the same heart because the people that are going to be saved are going to be saved, whether I evangelize or not. Now, that may say something about me that might be different about Calvinists who can do it with great passion. But the fact that someone is truly lost and they can truly make a choice to, to be the elect by believing in Jesus causes me to be very passionate and very powerful for those things. All right. So um, thank you for interacting on the things that we're covering. I love that. We're able to kind of carry on further discussion with it as well. Um, so Empress Kimberly says, um, is the prophetic movement a false doctrine? All right. Thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Um, let's just let's just think about that for a moment. Is the prophetic movement a false doctrine? Um, first of all, the Bible says not to despise prophecy. And I think there's a reason for that. Because God knew that there were going to be people that aren't perfect who were going to be practicing prophecy. And so we're not to despise it. But it says, let one person speak and let the others judge. Now, people who are giving prophecies don't necessarily like that. They don't like the idea that God is going to judge them or, or that we can judge those who are prophesying. Uh, a lot of prophetic ministries today are not by my judgment. And I get to judge them and you get to judge them. The fact that they say, I'm giving you a prophetic word. One speaks and the rest judge. It's not God's word. And sometimes it's really easy to judge it. Sometimes we can listen to the things that they're saying and we go, uh, okay, uh, that is very biblical. What they said there was very biblical. And I can take that prophecy. If someone comes to me and says, thus says the Lord, you're gonna die in a month, I don't have to receive that. And in fact, I've rejected prophecies like that. I've said, I won't live under that cloud. I had a prophet come to me years ago, now years ago, and say that in six months, thus says the Lord, in six months, this is not gonna be a church. God's told me he's displeased with you and what you're teaching. And this is someone who's in the prosperity movement in what would be considered the, pro the part of the prophetic movement today. And um, I said to them, okay, I hear what you're saying, but would you do me a favor? Come back in six months. And if I'm still here preaching, then apologize for your false prophecy. I never heard from him. He had prophesied that we were not going to be a church in six months, that we were going to be destroyed as a church. It didn't come to pass. That was not prophetic. And so in the Old Testament, you had to be 100% accurate to be, a, be called a prophet. Today, I look at the prophecy movement, um, the, that which has come out of the Kansas City prophets, uh, some, of, some of the other prophets now that are on, on YouTube speaking for God, and I'm not interested in a lot of what they say. I, um, I don't despise prophecy. And if somebody comes to me and says they have a word from the Lord, I'm ready to listen. But we get to judge those things. So I would say much of Kimberly, much of the prophetic movement today is, is not really hearing from God and prophesying. 
Would I call that false doctrine? It would depend on what they're teaching. Are they teaching prophecy in a way that is unbiblical? Then that would be a false doctrine. Now, just teaching a false doctrine doesn't make you a false prophet. A false prophet is someone who pretends to be a prophet and isn't a prophet. And I think those people are out there, but I would be very careful that I wouldn't want to call them a false prophet um, if they're teaching something that's false. Now, if they're prophesying something that's false, we get to judge it. That's just what the Bible says. And if you're a prophet, don't be upset that we're judging your prophecy. We're not judging you, but we're judging the prophecy because not everybody's right. One guy told me, we, he, he gave me a prophecy that was just, I wasn't going to accept it. I was going to live under it. And I told him I reject it. And he said, I've never been wrong. And I laughed and I said, I wanted to say to him, I don't know that I said it. I wanted to say to him, um, let's get your wife in here. Let's ask your wife about that. But what I did instead was go get his pastor. This was at a pastor's conference. I went and got his pastor and I said, go ahead and share with him what you shared with me. And his pastor was able to hear it so we could have two witnesses on what he was saying. And then I told him what I said, that I judged this immediately to be, to not be true. And I would not live under it. And time did reveal that it was not a true prophecy. And um, sometimes people, you know, you want to be careful when you speak for God. As a pastor, a teacher, we're handling the word of God. We want to be careful how we represent God. And we don't want to say something about God that is not true, that doesn't come from him. And as a pastor, I'm very weary or, or worried or careful that I don't speak for God when God hasn't spoken. I want to make sure I can clearly represent the things that God has said. And I think you guys can see that in our Q and A's and maybe even in the teaching that I do, that I'm not afraid to say, I don't know about this. I don't understand it. I'm not quite sure what God's saying here because I don't want to say just because I want to act like I'm, I know it all. And unfortunately, there are plenty of pastors who do that. I think I've been a pastor long enough that I can speak to pastors. And let me say to pastors, don't act like you know it all. Stop acting like, oh, just, you know, this Q&A here today is for us to seek the truth together. Taking information. I've been a pastor for 37 years. And so just taking that information that I've appiled over those years and taking a look at things. Does it mean I could be wrong? Certainly could be wrong. Does it mean that we can disagree? We can certainly disagree. That would be absolutely fine. All right. So um, appreciate you guys and why we've got the most people on that we've had on through, throughout it. I just want to say that we are trying to um, get control of the, the comment section a little bit better. And um, we want to um, make sure that, or, or at least be interacting with the things we're talking about and the questions that are asked. I think that when a question is brought up, not only can I be helpful by looking at scripture, but you can be helpful as well by maybe talking about some things I missed or maybe pointing out something that is different or maybe I was uh, I was a bit inaccurate. I, I'm not saying that we get, you know, catty about it, but that instead we just in lovingly gentleness correct. And sometimes I say something that I didn't mean. And so interacting with our chat and the questions that are asked and with the people that are there, uh, I think can be very, very powerful. So thank you guys so much um, for that. And I appreciate it. And I see already a lot of change today in them. And um, thank you, um, Tim. I hope that was indeed helpful. And uh, again, good to have you here with us today. All right. 
Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Keith, if you would have left that in, the pastor would be mad at our chat and wouldn't be mad at our chat anymore. All right, so yeah, I'm not mad about the chat. I'm just reading the chat logs afterwards and thinking we're missing a lot of opportunities to really come alongside of someone that's asking a question and help them. And the community that's built here is great. And I think that we could, uh, we could, we could interact in a more edifying, positive way. That would be good. All right. And we can still have fun and we can still be silly. All of that's good. Okay. I just um, think if we focus in a little bit more on, on the questions that we're having and the interaction and responses to that, we could, and I could interact with the chat a little bit more like I'm doing now. And I think that that would be positive. So um, we have a question from fact check these hands. Is this your second question? Fact check these hands. I can't remember. So I'm going to bring you in. Um, those who survive the tribulation, how do they do it? divine intervention or just extremely lucky? Um, yeah, I would. Extremely lucky. Let me think about that for a moment. So, you know, I mean, a quarter of the earth gets destroyed, a third of the earth gets destroyed after that. I mean, the number just keeps getting smaller and smaller. There's got to be survivors. And um, some the, the survivors will populate the earth during the millennium. And so how do they do that? Well, we know part of it's Israel and that God supernaturally protected Israel during the tribulation. We're in the book of Revelation. This next Wednesday night, we'll be doing the letter to Thyatira. God's judging the church now and will judge the world in chapter 6 through 18. Uh, but we're going to get to it all. And um, so Israel is supernaturally protected. And God, may, maybe the person is seeking him. Maybe they're asking God to, to save them and to rescue them and to not allow them you know, maybe God's, so that kind of thing is going on. Um, and so that we just don't know, maybe some people just get lucky. <laughs> They're not in one of the places where a third of the earth is destroyed. Um, but um, I do appreciate uh, that question. So we have a follow-up from Kimberly. Kimberly says, do you think all the these theologians like Calvinist, Baptist, etc., and there's two different groups, by the way, there are a lot of Baptists who are not Calvinists. And, and maybe even more, more Calvinist, more Baptists who aren't Calvinists. So there are a lot of Baptists who are Calvinists, but I think the majority of Baptists are not. So just a little clarification there. Do you think all of uh, the theologians like Calvinists, Baptists, etc., are trying to put God in a box? Don't you think God cannot be defined? Yeah, I think, well, I think God cannot be defined, Kimberly, yes. Uh, but I think our Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are, they believed in Jesus, they received him. They just have this way of reading the Bible that I think puts God at odds with what they're saying. Because God says, whosoever will, let them be saved. And um, I think that they would say, you can't put God in a box. I think they would say that. I think when we think about the Calvinist theologians, I think their definition of grace and sovereignty, other words like that are different than ours. When I talk about grace, it's that God wants to give unmerited favor to anyone who believes. And that person has the, could choose to believe or not. And by believing it, they didn't earn it, but they chose to believe. And that in the gospel is the grace to be able to believe and be saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So the gospel has power in it that will save you. They are, are not going to believe that same way. 
And but but they are going to say a lot of things like we would say, like they wouldn't want to put God in a box and they wouldn't want to say they can always figure out what God's going to do because we don't know what God's going to do. So what I, what I like to do is just be very careful when I'm talking about a theology that I don't agree with, that I don't build a straw man that's easy to tear down. People do that to me. I don't like it. And I have to come back in and clarify that's not what I believe. Uh, so I don't want to build a straw man when we're talking about Calvinism or any other doctrine that we would disagree with. Uh, instead, we want to understand it clearly and to be able to say why we don't believe that that is true. All right. So thank you very much. Um, and um, so um, is it Daru says a question, don't cast your pearls before swine. And then it got cut off there. Looks like you might've sent it in before. Um, so I'm not sure what it was, but yeah, when someone is not receiving what you're saying and they're getting, they're getting belligerent or blasphemous about it, then it's time to just pull back. Wait for another time to be able to do that. So we have a question from Violet Stag. Violet Stag, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. Violet Stag says, why did God curse the snake for what Satan did through it? Did the snake allow Satan to enter in, into it and possess it? Yeah, so, um, all right. So the serpent is more cunning than any of the other animals. And obviously it wasn't on his belly because later on it would be on his belly. And we know that the dragon, Satan is the dragon, the serpent of old. So we do know that it was Lucifer. Um, was there some kind of a cooperation between the serpent and allowing Satan to use him to deceive mankind? And maybe. I, I think that was God casting the serpent onto the ground a type of what God would do to Satan eventually by crushing his head? So that there was some kind of connection between the snake going and eating only dust and the, the demonic realm. Was the demonic realm changed in the curse? Like the earth was changed, like the wild woman's life was changed through childbearing and whatever it means her desire would be for her husband and the man's life would change that he would work by the sweat of his brow and it would all be tough, tough and difficult. Um, I think that there is perhaps an analogy that's there with the serpent being sent onto the ground and a reminder of the curse. And um, was the serpent willing, a willing participant? Um, we know that, and I, I, and, and I don't know, maybe it was just that the serpent was possessed by Satan. And as a sign, when we would see a serpent, we would remember the curse from the, that. And, um, so those are my thoughts on that. I don't know if it really answered anything, um, but I don't know that there really is an answer uh, to that. All right. Um, so yeah, thanks Keith for removing those. Um, and we have a question from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you. Good to have you here. And I appreciate you, brother. Daniel says, what does it mean that Eve was deceived by twisting God's word or because they didn't know what evil was and why was Adam not deceived? 
Okay, thank you. So Paul, in a, in a section of scripture, is talking about a woman not being in a position of authority in the church because it was Eve who was deceived and not Adam. And I think we've got to be very careful that we don't say that Paul was saying women are more easily deceived than, than men. I just think that's go into place. You should not go. Um, I know a lot of gals that have much better discernment than men. And, you know, it goes the other way. Women that don't have discernment at all. But I know men that don't have discernment at all. Uh, what it means is, is that Eve had this conversation with the devil and they both manipulated, twisted, denied, replaced the word of God. Right away from the beginning, Satan says, has God said you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden? God had said you can freely eat from all of them. So right away, he calls into question God's goodness by saying they can't eat from one tree by asking if he said you couldn't eat from any of them. And she said, we can eat of all the trees in the garden, but not a one in the middle. But God had said you can freely eat of all trees, not from one in the middle. So she made it less gracious. Satan immediately through God, um, changing God's word or asked, questioning God's word, gave an accusation towards God. She made God less gracious. And then Satan finally changes God's word. This, this goes back and forth between them. And you can see how they mishandle the word of God until Eve finally looks at the fruit and sees it's desirable to make one wise, that it's pleasant for food, and she eats it and she's deceived when she does because she has been working over the word of God and is finally brought to the place of temptation. And Satan does that when we, that's why when we start messing with the word of God, we start saying that it says something that it doesn't say, it's so dangerous. And Jesus, of course, when he was tempted, didn't allow that to happen at all. Satan questioned him in the same way. If you are the son of God, then turn this rock into bread, prove it, prove to me. And Jesus said, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So Jesus refuted him by the word of God correctly every time. And then he said, be gone, Satan. And the angels came and strengthened him. So he was true to the word of God, even though Satan quoted it. And he, like he did to Eve, quoted God's word, misquoted it both times. But Jesus stayed true to it, and he was able to overcome that. And um, so when Adam ate it, he wasn't deceived. He hadn't gone through that whole process. He saw Eve ate it. Maybe he saw change. Maybe he thought she ate it. It's okay for me to eat it. There could have been all kinds of justifications. But he ate it knowingly, knowing that it was wrong, that God said not to do it, not because he had been twisted or manipulated into it. So she was deceived and he wasn't. All right, Daniel, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Um... Let's see. So, um, Topper, I see your your little uh, question, quote here. Um, if I were asked why is men saved, I could only give the Calvinist answer: He is saved through the sovereign grace of God, and not at all of himself. Charles Spurgeon, from Pastor David Guzek. And yeah, Topper, I David Guzek believes exactly like I believe that a person is given a choice to believe. And that God has predetermined that those who believe are the elect and those who aren't are the vessels of dishonor. And there are just as many Spurgeon quotes that speak against Calvinism as there are that speak for it. And I think that's really an important point to understand 
So Spurgeon says, um, why is man saved? I could only give a Calvinist answer. He is saved through the sovereign grace of God and not all, at all of himself. And I would say, I agree with Spurgeon's quote 100%. I can say that perfectly. Why is man saved? I can only give you a Calvinist answer. He is saved through the sovereign grace of God. So it's the sovereign grace of God who saved man. God's the one who decided to send his son to shed his blood, to give man an opportunity. I'd done nothing. It's God's sovereign grace alone. All I do is receive it. And when I receive it, it's not meritorious. meritorious. I don't earn it. I'm just receiving it. I can't save myself. I'm lost in my sin. I have to be drawn by God before I can respond to him. So when David Guzik gives that, that Spurgeon quote, that's because we agree with it. 100%. It's just that they believe something different about sovereign grace than what we would. They believe sovereign grace is God rejecting some people. It's the strangest way to look at grace. Grace is that God will pour out his grace upon you if you believe in his son. And anyone who does that can be believed. So thank you, Topper, for giving me that quote. And um, I agree with Spurgeon's quote 100% there. Uh, 100%. So, yeah, um, Kimberly, they do only believe that the chosen are saved and that God chose before the foundations of the world who was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved. So uh, she responds to Topper's question by saying, Topper, now I'm confused. I thought Calvinists believe that only the chosen are saved. I guess I've been taught wrong. No, you're taught exactly right. They do believe that only the chosen are saved. Um they mean something different by sovereign grace. So we would look at that that quote by Spurgeon and go, yeah, I can't save myself. Only God can. I can't do anything to move closer to heaven. Only God can. I have to be drawn by God or I can't be saved. God's got it. I'm responding to God by receiving that free gift that he's done everything. He's done it all. The only thing that I do is receive it. If I give you a gift Kimberly, and you say, thank you. If I go, you know what? I found a new study Bible. It's got a great commentary in it. Kimberly, here, it's for you. I bought it for you. And you say, thank you. And you take the Bible by saying, thank you. And taking the Bible, have you done anything worthy to have received the Bible? No, it's a gift that's given to you and you received it. If you say, I don't want it. I bought it for you. And I put it down on the table. I say, well, it's yours. And you walk away and I walk away. I still bought the Bible for you but you didn't receive it. And so you don't have the Bible. And so Jesus died on the cross for you. And if you didn't receive it, then he still died for you. That's the way we look at it. But Calvinists certainly believe that only the chosen are saved. That's what they believe. So if you have more questions about that, we can try to make sure we can get some clarification there. All right. So thank you very much. We're coming to the end of our Q&A. In fact, we're a little bit over now. Um, so let's go ahead and take this question from Daru, D-A-R-U. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, we'll look at that, and this will be our last question. I'll take a look at the chat log. If you guys have questions down there, I'll look for something to start the next Q&A with. And um, I really do appreciate um, you guys interacting more on the topics in the chat. I think that's awesome. I think it's going to make... Uh, our Q&A so much more powerful as we are able to interact and talk about it. And we can talk about things that might be confusing to some or maybe something that I missed. I, I just think it's really awesome to do and I really appreciate you guys doing that. And I'm not angry at your text. I just sometimes I'm going through the chat log going, 
there could be responses here that could be helpful, but instead they're not. And that's all I'm saying, okay? I still think we should have fun. It's fine to tease one another, fine to have fun. That's all good, but more on spot, on point when it comes to the topics. Um, my wife is somewhat confused about Jesus is God. Her background is Muslim. I try to explain this, but she is still confused. He is God. Yeah, um, so in in Islam, Jesus is not God. And there is, the Trinity is not really easy to grasp. And when you come out of something, or I don't know if she's still Muslim or Christian, but if you come out of it to try to understand three in one and three distinct persons that are all three God, they are one in essence, but they are three in persons, that's hard to grasp and understand. And I, I we could talk more about it. I'm a little out of time now, and I would like to later on talk about some ways that we may be able to grasp that understanding a little bit better. Um, someone told me here recently, well, we have a body, soul, and spirit, so we're three in one. Yeah, but my body, you can't tell the difference between my soul and spirit. You might be able to tell my dead body without my spirit and consciousness. You go, that's his body, but he's gone. But my soul and spirit, you, there's no distinction. And there's distinction in all three of the Godhead. But the Bible teaches it clearly. Uh, John chapter one, and let me just go here. I wanna read you this passage, uh, Deru, and I hope I'm saying your, right, your name right, all right? I know there's probably no way unless you give me the phonetic spelling of it that you could correct me, but we're glad to have you here. So John chapter one, verse one, I'm gonna read this to you, read a, few, a bit of this, all right? And this will be our last question for today. I appreciate you guys. So here it says, um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, okay? He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. That's the word. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Uh, in him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Amazing. Then we go down to verse 14. Sorry to do that while you guys are watching. Hope you don't get dizzy or sick. Um, and the word that was with God in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the word, the word was God and the word became flesh and we beheld the glory of God by seeing the word becoming flesh. So Jesus became fully God. He was fully God and fully man while he was here on the earth, all right? And um, Deru, if you wanna join us next uh, Wednesday, we'll have our next one. We can talk a little bit more about the Trinity um, I think there are some things that I can help to clarify, maybe that you can share with your wife. Sorry, we're out of time. Um, and if I can't find anything else, I'll make that the first question for our next study, because it'd be good to, to, to spend some time talking about that. All right. So the Lord bless you. May he keep you, may, may he lift up his eyes upon you and be gracious unto you. I, I pray that you would walk close with Jesus. Listen, tonight we're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane this weekend in church and what happened there. And I was so moved by, by the teaching on prayer out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And I would encourage you to be one who prays. Abraham walked with God, and I love that. And Abraham, well, Abraham had these interactions, was called the friend of God. That's really what I meant, not walk with God, that was Enoch, it was the friend of God. And I picture Abraham out in the evening, just on the outskirts of camp, talking and walking with God, his friend. And I think we should do that. And I'll be talking more about that tonight um, at six o'clock, which is less than an hour away now for our service. I need to get over there. 
Unfortunately, I live a ways away, so I've got to get to church. Um, but I do appreciate you guys. We'd love to have you join us as we talk about prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's so powerful. Uh, Jesus is in agony. The agony of Gethsemane is um, just absolutely incredible to look at and consider. And we will be doing that tonight. I'd love to have you joining us. You can do that live. If you want to fight the rain? I know it's storming out there tonight. Uh, or you can join us online um, at six o'clock. Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow is the um, YouTube webpage. Calvary Chapel Tucson is our uh, Facebook page. And I think it'll be up on uh, Robert Furrow, the Robert Furrow page as well, just my personal page. But I think you have to, yeah, I think I'm, I'm maxed out on that page. Anyway, God bless you guys. Love you. Uh, love the interaction. Excited about what God's doing here. We will see you guys later on. I am out.